God, I ask that you would um, increase our faith in you. And I think often to the man who came to Jesus and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And um, it's one thing to say with our heads and our mouths that you are a good God and we know that you're trustworthy and you're wise. It's another thing for our hearts to be fully convinced of that. And so I pray that you would keep up the project of convincing us of your goodness. And I think about Paul, uh, who in this passage of Ephesians can in many ways rejoice in the fact that he is a prisoner because he sees it as an opportunity for the gospel to continue to flourish. Even though he had every reason to believe that the gospel his efforts in proclaiming the gospel would be more fruitful if he was out of prison. And um, I just thank you for his example of faith. And I pray that we would have that same kind of faith and confidence in you. Um, We thank you so much for your never failing, everlasting, absolute love for us displayed in the work of Christ on the cross. And I pray that we would find comfort in that. Just bless our time. Grow us as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Moshe, grab one of those pieces of paper back there because you will need it. So we're looking at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 this morning. Let me read that for us. I'll wait for you to turn there, even though you technically have it on the annoying yellow highlighted piece of paper in front of you. All right, Paul writes, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Okay, so I think the grammatical construction of Ephesians chapter 3 is a hot mess. And uh, Paul sometimes reveals himself to be kind of like an over-educated person and that the things that he writes get complicated. And actually, Peter even says that, right? I think it's 2 Peter where Peter says, some of the things that Paul writes are hard to understand. Okay, this would sort of be one of them. Okay, so we begin with, um, for this reason. Well, maybe I'll hold off one second because I'm setting up a thesis here that if people are going to come in and they miss the thesis... It might confuse things a little bit. I highly encourage everyone to grab one of those pieces of paper with the yellow highlighting on it back there. Um, That will help you understand where I'm going with this. Welcome everyone, come on in. Grab one of the pieces of paper with the highlighting on it right there. You'll need it as we uh, talk. I should have enough for everybody. 
Corey, as you guys come in, grab one of those pieces of paper with the highlighting on it. If you want to follow along, this will help under, help you understand. Okay, so we already read Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. If you're coming in a bit late, you can um, read it and, and uh, get caught up to speed. Um, the reason I've given you this piece of paper that is a mess is because I think that the grammatical construction of... Ephesians chapter 3 is a mess. That's no criticism of the Bible, right? It's God's word. Uh, it's just fascinating that God, in his sovereign wisdom, chose people to cooperate with him in the writing of scripture. And we see some of their personality come out in the different uh, books of the Bible that they wrote. Okay, so Paul begins Ephesians chapter 3 verse 1 by saying, For this reason. The first question that comes to mind is, what is the this reason that Paul is referring to? So um, words are signifiers, and the question is, what do they signify? What do they point to? Um, or, or another way of asking this is, what is the antecedent to the word this? What do you guys think? Part of the reason why I gave you the prior verses in the little handout is because an antecedent comes before, right? So you're going to have to look back to chapter 2 to answer the question. I would argue, for the sake of time, even though I asked you a question, I'm going to make it a rhetorical question. Um, I would argue that the this refers to essentially verses like 17 through 20 that on the handout I've given you are highlighted in red. Um, and that's why I pointed that little arrow back there as well. The idea here is that there is a unity in the body of Christ of Gentile and Jew. Okay? Um, Paul doesn't see his project as the apostle to the Gentiles as a sort of uh, different mission than the gospel going to the Jews. The gospel is for all people, right? So for this reason... I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles. So he's referring to, uh, let's say, verse 19 in particular. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, you Gentiles, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's a pretty astounding phrase because as a Jew, prior to his encounter with Christ, Paul would have believed that the household of God is who? exclusively the Jews, right? Okay. But now Paul's going to refer to this unity really as a special revelation that he received from God. And he's also going to talk about it in our verses as this mystery of Christ. So we're going to talk about that more in a moment. Let's finish out the grammatical difficulty of this passage. So verse one, does any, can anybody just perceive what the grammatical difficulty is of just verse one? Like only looking at chapter 3, verse 1. Yeah. Oh, like it doesn't, for this reason, but he never mentions the reason. Right? There's an incomplete idea here. And, uh, and, and when you begin to read verse 2, you're sort of expecting the idea to be finished, and it doesn't. And then verse 3, and it still doesn't. Verse 4, it still doesn't. So the, the question, the first question here is, where does Paul complete the idea that he begins in verse 1? Um, and actually, the ESV does a good job here because if you read this closely, 
grammar was never my strong suit, but there's no verb even in verse one, right? It's an idea fragment. It's even sort of a sentence fragment. And that's the case in, in the Greek as well. So, um, you know, uh, the, the ESV does a good job of representing this verse here because there's no verb in the English either, okay? Um, then, I, I think when you get into verse 2, what you have is a very long parenthetical statement. The, the next question is, where does the parenthetical statement come to an end, right? Parenthetical is a big word. It just means parentheses, right? So Paul goes, I, Paul, and then you get this long thing where he's not talking about whatever he began talking about here. Where does that thing end? So the reason I have this handout for you is to help you kind of uh, visually see my thoughts on this matter, okay? And uh, you'll have to forgive my really, really terrible lines. The reason is because I don't have a touchscreen computer, so I have to use my little mouse pad to like draw lines, and it's really hard to do. Okay, so I am arguing that the for this reason refers back to the Jews and the Gentiles becoming one people through Christ, okay? Then Paul says, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Where does he finish that? Well, I've highlighted prisoner, and you can follow that line all the way down to the word suffering in verse 13. So I, Paul, a prisoner, don't lose heart over the suffering for you, my suffering for you as a prisoner. I think that's kind of where he like closes that idea. And yet I would say that everything that's highlighted there is the parenthetical statement. And I would make that argument because verse 1 of chapter 3 says, for this reason. And you can see when you get down to verse 14, he's like, oh, wait, I didn't finish that thought. For this reason, then I pray this prayer for you, Gentiles, just like I would pray for the Jews. Okay? And actually, he says in verse 15, from whom every family... Now, you can follow my little line there all the way back up to 19 where it says members of the household of God, right? So he's talking particularly not about like every family as in mother, father, but this, this family that is the family of God, I would say, okay? Now, I realize that uh, I'm not really this morning supposed to get to verses 7 through 19, but I really needed you to see because... I think you would be super confused if I just stuck to verses 1 through 6 and, and then it was like, wait, but what is Paul saying here? Okay. And then uh, what I've highlighted in red within the yellow highlighting, what I've, what I've turned into red text, is uh, what Paul is discussing regarding this idea of the mystery Okay, that, he, that was revealed to him. Um, so hopefully this gives you kind of like a 20,000 foot view of what's going on in this chapter. Does anybody have any questions on that? And I guess if you're listening on the recording, I can try and post my little cheat sheet uh, for you to download. But does anybody have any questions about what I've laid out here? Or maybe you see it differently. If you want to make a case for a different closing to the parenthetical statement or where Paul finishes his idea in verse 1, feel free to take a crack at it. All right, so then let me just reiterate the big ideas here. First, Jews and Gentiles have been made one people through the work of Christ. And that was a big theme of chapter 2. Remember that? Point number 2. This was always God's plan for the nations 
salvation of both Jew and Gentile. Because look at verse 5. This was not made known to the sons of man in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy prophet or uh, to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit. Okay? So where we're going to go is we're going to unpack these different ideas. The third big idea here is that the salvation of Jew and Gentile and the making them one people was veiled in mystery uh, was was veiled as a mystery until it was revealed especially to Paul. The fourth big idea is that Paul was specifically appointed by Jesus and empowered through the Spirit to bring this message of inclusion to the Gentiles. And then verse five, or no, point number five is that Paul is in prison and he is suffering because he is so committed to this work that he'll go to any lengths whatsoever to proclaim the good news of Jesus. So, any questions on that? Pastor, yes. When you think of the, if the parenthetical uh, statement was ending, um, I, I just started to think about this. Yeah. So you you know a lot more about the passage, I'm sure. So when it ends by spirit, right, verse five. What if it was ending there? And then he basically states the, the reason, which is the mystery. And he talks about, again, being a gospel minister and then going back to his suffering for them. And it says, because I suffer for you, and I need to the Father, before the Father, verse 14. Do you think that could be also another way? I mean, I don't know. It looks like the parenthetical statement is very long. Yeah, my my only issue with that is, so you're saying it would close at the end of verse 5? Yeah, so then the, the reason is, uh, for this reason, and then the idea he lays out is mystery. And then, then he launches into another another um, um, commentary on the gospel. My, my only problem with that is that you still seem to be lacking a verb. For this reason, what? I, I Paul, what? Does that make sense? Verse 6... We still don't. We still don't get Paul engaging in some kind of action in response to the reason. Does that make sense? But I, but I'm open to different things. I mean, I'm not even totally convinced that the parenthetical statement ends at the end of 13. It could end maybe at the end of 12. Maybe he's saying, for this reason, I Paul ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering, oh, yeah. right? But at least there you've got a verb of what Paul is doing. He's asking them not to lose heart. I think that's a possibility. But I don't see any verb in verses 2 through 12 that really kind of close out what Paul is intending to do. Does that make sense? Well, maybe it could be then uh, it ending in verse 3. But it says, for this reason, you can perceive. Right? Yeah, as I've written briefly, that's possible. Um, but the yeah, and I mean, to some degree, it's kind of irrelevant. Like, I just want you to see. We have to pick this apart to kind of figure out what Paul is getting at here, right. um, because this can happen with Paul sometimes, where you get kind of lost. And you know what? This is also really important for you guys to understand. And I've said this many times in adult Sunday school, but the original Greek manuscripts have no punctuation, no spacing, no paragraph. 
indentations, right? So the, if you're looking at the ESV, there's a paragraph between verses 6 and 7. Paul did not put that there. That's an interpretive decision. So those are things that help us to understand, like, okay, where is the actual idea here? Now, brilliant scholars are the ones who are making these interpretive decisions. So we should be slow to be like, well, I'll just toss this out. You know, people thought very hard about these decisions. Still, they're not inspired, right? Those people are not, you know, they're not divine themselves. So we have some freedom to be like, well, I really actually don't think, like, I would argue that if I'm correct here, this paragraph should disappear. Like, verse 6 should flow right into verse 7. But, whatever. Let's, let's unpack it a little bit more. Um, unless you want to add anything else to that. Okay. So, let's talk a little bit about uh, Paul's imprisonment. Paul says that he's in prison on behalf of the Gentiles, right? That's verse 1. Um, he firmly believes that his imprisonment, then, is a service to the Gentiles. That's amazing. Like he says, I'm in prison on behalf of you Gentiles. Another way that you could say that is like for the benefit of you Gentiles. Um, well, let's remember, how did Paul get into prison? Does anybody remember? The story unfolds in Acts 19, 20, 21, 22, really f fundamentally in 21 and 22. Um, you know, Paul actually... Uh, meets up with the Ephesian elders. I think that's chapter 20. And then from there, he's told by, um, not Apollos, um, Agabus, that if he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to be bound and thrown in prison. And Paul goes to Jerusalem anyway. And when he's in Jerusalem, the Jews accuse him of, you know, stirring up uh, all kinds of political trouble. And they're going to try and kill him in the streets and word gets back to the um uh the guy who's in charge of the romans there I, I forget the title for that whatever and they arrest paul and and then paul appeals to caesar and therefore ends up sort of slowly making his way towards rome okay so what is it that upset the jews so much that they accused paul of political unrest him preaching Christ, specifically Christ for who? The Gentiles. the Gentiles, right? The Jews did not like this message, that the Messiah would be a Messiah for anyone beyond the Jews was reprehensible to them, okay? So Paul is literally in prison because of his message of hope for the Gentiles, okay? But uh, we could add, you know, tease this out a little bit more. Why is he in prison on behalf of the Gentiles? This is fascinating. Like, this is, this is something that mystifies me. Why would God take the foremost preacher and apostle, probably the person most responsible for the gospel spreading to the ends of the earth, and throw him in prison? Um, I mean, the answer to this is just that God in his sovereign wisdom can cause his kingdom to come about in spite of us and not because of us, right? Um, this is kind of a beautiful thing because we, we look at ruins a lot of times and we go, what could possibly be made of this? And God sees opportunity where we see ruin, right? So in Philippians chapter 1, Paul says, 
I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul actually says, guys, I'm in prison because this is the most effective way for the gospel to be proclaimed. That's pretty fascinating. So Paul was always looking for the most strategic ways to spread his message. If you read Acts, what you see is that he went to big city centers. And when he was in big city centers, he went to the places where all the people were. He, he wasn't going to like, I mean, along the way, certainly he stopped at some back, you know, backwater places. But um, he's in Ephesus, he's in Corinth, he's in these places where he can have the most uh, impact. Um, and uh, what, what we see here, though, in you know, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, and then when we correlate it with Philippians chapter 1, is that Paul, in this small phrase, is really revealing a, a deep faith that he believes God has strategically placed him in prison for the sake of the gospel. Uh, man, that's pretty incredible. So another point here that I think further argues this is notice the way Paul constructs the sentence. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Does anybody's translation say for Christ Jesus? No, what does he say? Of. I mean, look, that single word is incredibly significant. Because who does it seem to place the responsibility for his imprisonment upon? Jesus, right? He's not saying, I'm doing this for Christ. I'm actually doing this because this is where Christ has placed me. And if you look at this in the Greek, um, the Greek does not actually have, uh, like, the word here, okay? Um, there's no preposition. There's no conjunction. It's not as if your Bible is chewed, like there's this word in the Greek and your Bible has chosen to translate it a certain way. This is, uh, Greek works a little bit different in this regard. It has cases and uh, this is in the genitive case, okay? So what that means is that the word of is definitely the best translation here. This is not, this, we're not dealing with something where we could say, well, maybe we're losing the meaning in in translation here. This is very clearly Paul saying, I am a prisoner of Christ. Not a prisoner of Caesar or a prisoner of Rome, but a prisoner of Christ. So mine says for. So I, um, which translation is that? Ah, interesting. Um, what, uh, what year is yours published? You're, 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 I'm not saying for this reason, I, Paul, it, you're saying a prisoner for Christ Jesus? Yeah. Fascinating. Ephesians 3, verse 1, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Ah, okay. Well, I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill. Um, you know, they're, they are updating these, so it'll be interesting. Maybe after class, we can just look and see what the published date of yours is. I'm guessing it's probably a little bit older. How long have you had it? Uh, I don't, I bought it used. Okay. Oh, so. no. The elder is not. 
Yeah, so uh, like I think three years ago they put out uh, like an updated version. Uh, but that's interesting, right? Because at one point they had four, and I'm guessing that the updated translation, they switched that to of. And again, that's because we're not dealing with a word in Greek. We're dealing with a grammatical construction, which is the genitive case. So uh, again, I don't want to make a mountain out of a molehill. But what I'm arguing here is that Paul is displaying in this language a deep and profound faith in Jesus. That he is not in prison because bad things happened to him or because circumstances happened or because you know uh, Caesar placed him there or because the Jews placed him there. What's, what, what is Paul arguing in this small linguistic decision? That God, I would even use a different word than allowed, that God has purposed him to be here, right? Exactly. I would say that Paul sees the sovereign, providential wisdom of God in his imprisonment. Man, what a beautiful, profound statement of faith. So let me ask you, just on an application level, is that how you think about your adverse circumstances? Not just that like bad things have happened to you, but that God in his sovereign providential wisdom is walking you through this for his purposes. I think that's how we should think about these things, right? I mean, that's how Jesus viewed the cross. Um, that's how scripture talks about Job's suffering. Um, so, all right, we can move on. Verse 2, unless anybody has any other questions or comments on that. And if it's genitive, this is the way it should be translated anyway. Um, uh, because it's the complement of a noun. Right. It's genitive, so. Um, and, and it's so deep <laughs> that way, also, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I do uh, like to find affirmation that the things that I'm teaching align with what other people generally have taught. That's always an encouragement, right? When I when I do my own study, and I'll be honest, like I didn't go to the commentary for this. This was my own work to, you know, to draw this out of the text. But it's always encouraging when after you've done that work, you go to a commentary that is a trusted commentary and you find that the person is saying that it, what you perceived is accurate, right? Um, that's always an encouraging thing. Okay. Uh, I do want to keep moving because I'm excited to talk a bit about the mystery here. But before we do that, verse 2, Paul says that he has this stewardship of God's grace, right? He says, I assume you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me. And um, he knows they have because he's already told them, which is what he's going to say in a, in, a, in a minute. But uh, I want to talk a little bit about what this stewardship of God's grace is. I think it specifically refers to Paul's appointment as the apostle to the Gentiles. Okay? So can I assign people some different texts to look up and read for us? Um, somebody needs to take, this is the, the longest one, Galatians 2, 7 through 9. And I need people who can read nice and loud for the audio recording. Somebody willing to take that one? Okay, Galatians 2, 7 through 9. Let me assign the other ones so people can get there. Acts 9, 15 through 16. 
Somebody willing to read Acts 9, 15 through 16? All right, Don, thank you. Uh, will someone take Acts 22, verse 21? Yeah, I can take that. Thank you, Andrew. And then Acts 23, verse 11. You got it, Luca? Yeah. All right, Acts 23, verse 11. 22, 22 verse 21. And then the other one was Acts 9, 15 through 16, and Galatians 2, 7 through 9. So let's start with Galatians 2, 7 through 9. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. For he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles, and they to the circumcised. So we're picking up mid uh, kind of idea here, but Paul, in the letter to the Galatians, is giving a bit of his uh, autobiography, right? His Why is he authorized as an apostle? Um, and what he's explaining here, you can see it again and again and again, particularly in the last verse there, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Okay, So Paul's basically just making this point that he was given the task of being the apostle to the Gentiles. We'll see that, that action take place as we look at Acts now. So somebody read, who, who has Acts 9, 15 through 16? Okay, done. But the Lord said to them, Go, for he is a chosen instrument for my, of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Oh man, verse 16, what a commission that is. Okay. Again, we're entering mid-thought here, but this is shortly after Paul encounters the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. And he's sent to a man named Ananias. Paul's made blind. And, he, and, and he's told to meet a man named Ananias at Straight Street. And he goes to Ananias. And then we see this moment where the Lord Jesus speaks to Ananias. And he says, go help Paul. He's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. Now, not exclusively the Gentiles. You see also kings and the children of Israel. Um, but Gentiles is placed before Israel. Okay, next one, Acts 22, verse 21. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. So this is now Paul recounting his story before, I think it's King Agrippa in chapter 22. And, uh, and what he is doing is quoting Jesus. Jesus says to him, go, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles. Okay, who's got Acts 23, verse 11? The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified in the past about me and Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So this one is a, a little less poignant than the other ones, but again, this is Jesus encouraging Paul now as he's in prison that, Paul, you're going to go to Rome and you're going to testify before Caesar potentially, right? You're going to testify in Rome. And now that's what Paul is essentially saying in Philippians chapter 1 and what we see in Ephesians chapter 3, okay? So the stewardship of God's grace that Paul has been given is this uh, stewardship of the gospel to the Gentiles. Make sense? Any questions on that? Okay. Now, if you look... Uh, 
he says in verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Man, there's a lot of profound ideas wrapped up in this. First of all, um, we're going to talk about what the mystery is in a minute, but how was the mystery made known? Paul says it was made known to him by what? A revelation. Now, you may have things in your life where you're like, well, I really feel like God laid this on my heart or led me to do this kind of thing. No one in this room can say that God has given them a revelation like this. Okay, And, and we can prove that because uh, did Jesus ever meet you on the road to Damascus in bodily resurrected vocal form? No. no, right? So Paul is dealing with something that is particular to Paul. We should not say that we have received revelation from God outside of Scripture. Anybody want to discuss that further? So if you're watching some YouTube video of some person who claims to be a prophet and they're like, I have a revelation from the Lord, shut it down. <laughs> okay? Uh, the revelation needs to be like what Paul describes or it's... Or it should just come straight from the Bible. Okay. Uh, and he says he's written about it briefly. And uh, he's basically in that phrase there saying that he's, he's been talking about it through this letter already. Okay. Like we remember back to chapter 2. Okay. Uh, I think Galatians 1 and 2 explains this revelation and the process of it. So I'm going to read this for you because I, I cut out some verses. It's kind of a long section. So just listen as I read this, beginning in verse 11 of Galatians chapter 1. Paul says to the church in Galatia, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Right? These are not my ideas. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation from Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. There's that word again, revelation. In order that I might preach him among the Gentiles... I did not immediately consult with anyone. Isn't that fascinating? Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned then again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. Then he gets into it more in, in chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation, and I set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Okay? So what I'm getting at here is Paul is describing this revelation, the process of receiving it from God. Does that make sense? Any questions on that? Okay, we're still going to get to mystery, but before we do this, um, so ver verse 4 says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. And, and if you go back and you read chapter 2, you will. You'll perceive it, that Paul 
understands something about the gospel that is beyond what is revealed in the Old Testament. And he says then in verse 5, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Okay, so what we're dealing with in this verse is a concept called progressive revelation. Can anybody define progressive revelation? Yes, that was a good good way of summarizing. So if you go to Genesis chapter 3 and you see there uh, the curse that God lays upon the serpent. Do you remember that curse? God says, well, he says to the, to the woman and the serpent, basically, I mean, the part of the serpent is that um, the, the, there will be enmity between you, the serpent, and the offspring of the woman. And he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. Okay? That's the gospel. But is it clear? No. Okay? So what we find, let me just give you the definition I have. As scripture unfolds through the history which it records, God's people progressively receive more revelation of God's redemptive plan until the full picture is revealed in the ark from Genesis to Revelation. Okay, So the plan was always there, but what Moses understood of it is very different than what Paul understood of it. Okay, What David understood of it was very different than what Peter understood of it. Because as history progresses, more of the plan of God's redemptive work becomes more clear. Okay, As Paul says in verse 5, prior generations could not have completely perceived God's plan. Why? Because... It was veiled, right? Verse 3, the mystery that was made known to me by revelation. So now that we have the full picture, we can clearly see all these things throughout the Old Testament pointing to who? Christ, right? And in fact, that's what Jesus does on the road to Emmaus at the end of Luke. Let me read it for you. And Jesus said to them, and let me just set up the story, right? After the resurrection, we get this picture in Luke's gospel. Uh, it's in Luke chapter 24 of these two men walking on this road to Emmaus. And they meet Jesus. They don't know it's Jesus. And they start talking with him, right? And he's asking them some questions. And then, and then it says, And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Moses didn't understand it. David didn't understand it. The prophets didn't fully understand it. I mean, they knew that there was something. God was up to something and he was going to redeem people. But Jesus, now that the resurrection has happened can walk them through the Old Testament Genesis to Malachi and say, look, guys, it's all about me. Okay, That's the idea of kind of progressive revelation. It's now becoming clear. Any questions on that? I think it's uh, relevant to also say that they, though the mystery, it was a mystery and they didn't understand it the same way, but they all understood that 
it's by faith we are saved. And none of them, the saints, at least, who have been saved, were saved by thought that they could be saved by work or whatever they done, right? Like David, for example, in Psalm, he says that it's not that it's not sacrifice that the Lord looks for, that you look for the, the contrite earth, right? Yeah, and again, I would say, yes, anybody in the Old Testament, even under the Old Covenant, who was saved, was saved by faith. Absolutely. But even that idea is not commonplace, which is why Paul has to flesh it out in, in Romans and also Galatians chapter 3 in particular, right? Where he, he talks about uh, it was the faith of Abraham. So even that idea is actually mostly veiled. You know, that's why, uh, that's why the, the, the uh, Pharisees will say, we know who our father is. Our father is Abraham. Who's your father, right? They're banking not on faith. They're banking on, yeah, you know, genetics, like they're banking on their ethnic connection to Abraham. So, yes, 100%, I agree that everyone, even under the old dispensation, the old covenant, who was saved was saved by faith. But that was not typical, I would say. Uh, I, believe, I believe that they yeah. actually, uh, God revealed to them that they were saved. So, the, his elect. He revealed to them that they were saved by faith, and that's why uh, uh, David wrote that. That's why Job says, "My redeemer lives, uh, lives." And um, so, it's there's not no difference from the Old Testament and today on how people think that some many actually, except the Christian, the elects, think that they are saved by work. The Muslim think they are right. saved by work. The Buddhists think the same way, and so on and so forth. And even the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses. As they are working so hard to earn their place on yeah. in a certain earth or new earth or so forth, or so forth. and that's the same thing for some uh, some Jews. But the elects, I believe that God revealed to them that sure. they're saved by faith. Absolutely, I would agree with that one hundred percent. Because um, in order to have faith in God, you have to understand that your works are not impressive to Him. <laughs> so you're not trusting on your your actions. You're trusting His grace, His mercy, right? Okay, um, we're going to get into verse 6 now, and we're going to talk about the mystery, and I'm going to have to go kind of fast because typically Gabe would give our children's ministry uh, volunteers communion, and he's not here today, so I'm going to be serving them communion. So, Okay, so what I want to um, work out here is what is the mystery? Well, Paul defines it in verse 6, right? He says, that in case you're curious, <laughs> and, and we should let Scripture interpret Scripture, so Paul says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ through the gospel. Now, there's actually more embedded in here than might initially meet the eye. So let's flesh it out a little bit more. First of all, Gentiles are fellow heirs of Yahweh's gracious salvation. Uh, ask an Old Testament Jew if they think Gentiles can be part of God's plan for salvation, and they're going to tell you no. They might say something like, well, not unless they get circumcised and come to the temple and follow the law, etc., etc., etc. That would be the closest they could get to saying, yeah, there's salvation for the Gentiles. Okay, And again, even though this is actually written in the Old Testament, you find it. Um, uh, I should have given you some examples, but you know, I think it's Isaiah that says, and a light will dawn even upon the Gentiles. Okay, we'll move on. The next one is that they would become members of the same body. 
So to a Jew, this would be incomprehensible. How can you, who are not a child of Abraham, be grafted into the children of Abraham? It's not possible, right? But Jesus says, well, look from these rocks, I can raise up children from Abraham. So this is a part of the mystery that Gentiles are now, by faith, sons of Abraham, though they are not children of the flesh. Make sense? That's a mystery. And again, if you want to look at, look at that in more detail, uh, Galatians chapter 3 is a great place to go. Romans 4 through 6 would also be a good place to go for that. They're members of the same... Oh, we already talked about that. They're partakers of the promise. Uh, if you go back and you read Genesis chapter 12... Actually, what you'll find there is that God says to, there's a, there's a three-part, uh, you know, kind of a three-prong promise. Does anybody know what the three prongs are? You will be a nation, you will have a property, and you will be blessed to be a blessing. And actually it says, and through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now that doesn't mean that all the people of the earth will be blessed. But through him, Christ will be a savior for all people in any nation, not just Jew. Make sense? Right? So all along, like from Genesis 12, the Gentiles were going to be blessed through God's work. But that was a mystery to the Jews until it's revealed to Paul. Okay, any, any questions on any of that? Okay, so that, that's what we see. Look, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise. But then he says, in Christ through the gospel. So there's much more we can tease out here. So Christ, part of the mystery that Paul has had revealed to him, is that the Messiah is not the descendant of David merely. He is the incarnate Son of God. Like, no Jew would have ever anticipated that in the Old Covenant. Like, being Son of David, carrying on the kingly, priest, or the kingly line of David, that was significant enough. But actually, what, what the, the incredible mystery here is that the Messiah is the Son of God. So he's not merely an earthly king. He's the king of heaven and earth. The Messiah is not merely a savior for the Jews. He's a savior for all people. Um, that's some mystery that we begin to see revealed through what Paul teaches that he received from the Lord. And then we get this word gospel, right? The promise in Christ through the gospel. So this, the gospel here, uh, I would say, is that salvation is not through a socio-political movement of men. It's through a movement of the Spirit. How does one begin to believe in the gospel? I would say not by your choice, but by the Spirit drawing you to the Father. So the gospel is not a work of law. It's a work of Spirit. That's mystery. And again, there's hints of this all throughout the Old Testament, but it's now become clear in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. Um, salvation is not salvation merely from enemies or strife in this life. 
It is salvation. This is part of the gospel. It's salvation from the effects of sin and evil and death. So for the Jew in the Old Covenant, they were thinking, well, we'll have a land, and in that land there will be rain, and there will be crops and food and riches and safety from enemies. But actually, Paul says, no, the mystery of the gospel is you could have none of that, and you can still have peace, peace with God, and eternal security in his kingdom. We can tease out the gospel further and say that uh, the gospel is a message of salvation, not by means of conquering, but through Christ laying down his life. No Jew would have anticipated that the son of David, who would be the Messiah, would die instead of raise an army and kill. Right? David was called a man of bloodshed. That's why he wasn't permitted to build the temple. Jesus is a man of bloodshed, but in the opposite way. Mystery, right? He sheds his own blood, not the blood of others, in order to be the king. The next part of the mystery in the gospel, is, and we already touched on this one a bit, is that salvation is not by law or by works. It's by grace. And then I would say, finally, another part of the gospel mystery is that circumcision is not a matter of the flesh. It's a matter of the heart. Those are some beautiful mysteries of the gospel. Now, to us, they're probably very commonplace because we think and talk about these things a lot. Um, but we think and talk about them because of the kinds of stuff that Paul writes, where he says, look, this is a mystery that all of this is now taking place in and through Christ. Anybody uh, want to throw in any final thoughts? Last word. All right, well, then let me pray for us. God, we thank you that this mystery has been revealed and that we are partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. We thank you that it's not by our work or our effort. We thank you that it's not by ethnicity or by membership in some family. But we thank you that it's by the Spirit that we are members of the household of God. And I pray that, like Paul, we would have great faith in your finished work and great faith in your sovereign wisdom, that you are the God who can carry this plan of salvation to completion through all the generations of human history. Lord, I pray that that truth would increase our faith and trust in you as we look at the problems that we face in our daily lives. And I pray that, like Paul, we would see that whatever circumstances we might be walking through, um, you and your goodness and your wisdom are working those things as part of your perfect plan. And we give you thanks for that in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.